Welcome back to Atomic Hobo. I'm publishing this episode on the morning of 9th May on what is Victory Day in Russia, where Red Square will be draped in flags and finery and will shake with the thunder of tanks and trucks and trundling missiles. Easy to forget what this massive parade and its associated celebrations are actually for. It is, of course, marking the victory of the Soviet Union over Nazi Germany, but over the years, it has uh, soured, I would say, and become more about just showing off military might, stamping and stomping and saluting and putting on a great big strutting show. And for whose benefit? The soldiers and the partisans and nurses and snipers who fought in the war, they obviously become fewer in number each year. As the Soviet Union, and now Russia, lost its actual participants in the war, they began to replace them in these parades and celebrations with children, putting old soldiers' caps on little kids in nursery and steeping them in the memory of the war. And it seems they are also replacing the lost veterans with sound and fury, as the victory parades get louder and more fiercely patriotic every year. Indeed, it is now an annual event. Previously, it was just in the Soviet days. It was an occasional thing, but now, under Putin, every single year we get the victory parade. Instead of paying genuine uh, tribute and offering heartfelt thanks to people who, for their role in defeating the Nazis... It seems the memory of the war and the name of the people who fought is being simply exploited. Putin seems to me like a parasite who's constantly sucking on the blood of the great patriotic war. Is it not a spectacular insult to every Russian who fought to now have their sacrifice used as a sordid excuse for invading Ukraine? There are, of course, many theories about what Putin will do today. Will he use the latest victory parade in Moscow to make some terrible announcement? Will he declare war on Ukraine? He has, up to now, of course, called it a special military operation. But if he declares it to be an actual war, then it means Russia can fully mobilise and he can start pulling in conscripts. But, as has been said by many experts, that is no magic solution for him, as it will still take months to recruit and train and install these new recruits. And uh, taking all those nice middle-class Moscow and St. Pete boys away from their nice middle-class mamas, won't that risk turning public opinion against Putin? So maybe he'll go the opposite way and make a speech declaring victory in Ukraine. He has almost carved the land bridge he's rumoured to have wanted from the Donbass down to Crimea, although the fighters in Mariupol's Azovstal plant remain and say they will not surrender. But is this enough for him to call it victory? And if he does, uh, <laughs> will people back home believe him? Or, as many have argued, and I am inclined to agree, will he say nothing of note and just keep feasting on the stolen glory of Soviet war veterans. It is infuriating. Uh, The Second World War 
obviously known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War, is not his property. Although it doesn't matter what I think, or what we in the West think, surely whatever he does, or doesn't do today, is intended as a message primarily for the Russian people, his domestic audience. The ones he has to keep on side. If you want some insight into Putin and Russia at this moment, I recommend my podcast episode from last week with Professor Mark Galliotti. But what we will do in this episode is look back at a previous victory parade in Moscow, that of May 1985, which was a huge extravaganza, being, of course, the 40th anniversary of the end of the war. I am in no mood to give the Russians credit for anything at the moment, but in researching their victory celebrations of 85, I had to admit that, in my own opinion and experience, they were right about one thing, that the West doesn't adequately acknowledge their sacrifice in the war. We in Britain are, of course, quite obsessed with the war, but not in the same ferocious and proud and tetchy way the Russians seem to be. I'm making huge generalisations here, of course, but our folk memory of the war seems to have a bit of humour to it, with things like um, poking gentle fun at the so-called Dad's Army and seeing Hitler as a ridiculous, ranting little figure to be mocked. The two things can coexist. You can mock Hitler's moustache or sing a song declaring he only has one ball, the others in the Albert Hall, while still knowing and understanding the absolute horror of what he unleashed. So as I grew up and learned about the war, there was always something quaint and wholesome and chipper about it. Obviously, growing up, I wasn't taught military stories of the war. I was taught about life on the home front, which I suppose in Britain allows you to skirt most of the horror, which was happening on the continent, of course. And with the stories I grew up on, uh, life on the home front was all about being plucky and inventive and refusing to let Mr Hitler get you down. It almost seemed like this... uh, jokey approach was to cover some kind of British embarrassment we felt at being proud of the notion of standing alone in 1940. No need to email me and tell me we didn't stand alone, I know that, and uh, maybe that's where some of our sense of embarrassment comes from. And so we smother that by watching repeats of Dad's Army. Whistle while you work, Hitler is at work. He's half army, so's his army, whistle while you... Your name will also go on the list. <laughs> what is it? Don't tell him, Pike. Pike. <laughs> Another way of hiding your mild British embarrassment is to laugh and shrug and say, well, thank God for those yanks, eh? <laughs> that showed that you were a bit edgy, a bit cheeky, a bit bold, handing it over to the Americans, saying, yeah, they saved our bacon... Saying that shows that you've read a history book and haven't just absorbed your wartime knowledge from old war films or reading the tabloids. But nowhere in my childhood or school years, nowhere did I learn about the Soviet role in the war. The lazy versions I had were either it was Britain 
or it was us with the spectacular help of the Americans. It was only later, much later, that I started to read, mainly through the brilliant Svetlana Alexeyevich, who I often recommend on this podcast. Through her books and others, I learned about the about what happened in the Soviet Union during the war, and I was gobsmacked. Now, I say again, this was just my experience, and maybe everyone else in the Western world learned about the Soviet role in the war. So, yes, I can see why they might uh, have smarted and sulked a little at seeing us over here indulging in a lot of backslapping. But instead of us all learning and educating ourselves, it seems, as was the way in the Cold War, that we split into two camps. We say we won the war, and they say it was them. And we forgot very quickly that we were allies. So perhaps this is what drove the Soviets to put on such a fervent display during their victory parades. Perhaps it was a bit of hurt feelings, um, irritation, feeling insulted, infuriated at Western certainty that they were the good guys, they saved the world. Were those huge parades in Red Square away then of stamping and saying, look at me, pay attention to me, look what we did, remember, acknowledge what we did. Or, as mentioned earlier, are these things always done with a domestic audience in mind? Maybe they don't care what we think over here. Is the purpose to reinforce patriotism and pride and a huge respect for the military? To compel the population to be obedient and respectful and orderly? After all, the motherland might need you again one day. And you certainly need it. It saved you and the world from Nazism, so they say. Certainly in the Victory Day Parade of 1985, Gorbachev in one of his speeches said that the victory over the Nazis wasn't just a military victory, a question of one army beating another, but it proved and reinforced the fact that communism was the superior ideology. Here's a quote. It was not only our weapons, our economy, and our political system that triumphed, It was a victory for the ideas in whose name the revolution was made and the Soviet people fought and died. It was a victory for our ideology and our morality. Turning to the celebrations themselves in May 1985, Russia indulged in furious patriotic fervour in the run-up to Victory Day. Here is the New York Times reporting from Moscow, saying, An unparalleled torrent of speeches, books, movies, newspaper articles, records and television programmes have extolled the victory. Coins and medals have been struck. Workers and farmers have dedicated their labours to the anniversary. Bemedaled veterans have told and retold their exploits in classrooms and factories. No event can match the war in its mystical hold. It is regarded as an almost sacred act of national sacrifice and deliverance. Its memory 
is both traumatic and glorious. The article goes on to say, granite monuments and eternal flames commemorate the war in almost every city and it's common for newlyweds to sanctify their vows with a visit to a war memorial. This constant uh, living in the past, uh, feeding off that one event and pinning your identity to it, it reminds me of the tragic ageing film star Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard. If you haven't seen the film, she was once a beauty, a silent film star from the old days, rich, uh, powerful and adored. But now her career is over. She has grown old and Hollywood has moved on without her. And now she just wanders around her dusty mansion, watching and re-watching her old films, getting ever more detached from reality. In the film's most famous line, a a cheeky journalist accidentally stumbles into the mansion. Um, I think his car is broken down and he needs a phone or something. And he recognises her and he exclaims, You're Norma Desmond. You used to be in pictures. You used to be big. And with a withering sneer, she replies, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Well, that's often how I see uh, Russia living off the past and living in the past, living it and reliving it and never moving on. You used to be a superpower, you used to be big. I am big, it's the Soviet Union that got small. Anyway, the film ends with the murder and a descent into madness. As I say, that's how I see Russia. Indeed, speaking of madness and swooning emotions. Emotions were actually running so high during the May 85 celebrations that the newspaper archives tell me that an ambulance had to be stationed outside a theatre in Leningrad, which was showing a war documentary. And this was so they could quickly deal with all the Russians inside who were expected to faint and swoon and pass out with the enormity of pride and emotion and grief that the old war film would produce. So as we've said, the 1985 celebrations uh, also saw little Soviet kids being dressed in military uniforms uh, and wearing old soldiers' caps to nursery and school. And we've been seeing a lot of that recently in Russia. Well, it was already taking root, it seems, back in 85. And maybe this was being done to reinvigorate the wartime memory and the, the presence of it in daily life. After all, you are losing your veterans each year to age and illness. So here is a fresh batch of young'uns raised on 1941 and literally wearing the uniforms of that era. As your genuine veterans and survivors die off, here are some (laughs) cheap little knockoffs straight from the patriotism factory. In fact, the Times reported in May 85 that, um, this is the Times of London, that emotions and celebrations actually seemed to be getting stronger as the war receded in time. Here's a quote from one of the reports. Memories seem to be becoming more powerful rather than the reverse as the war recedes. The article goes on and speaks of, quote, the myths by which the Soviet regime lives and which justify its power. All Russians say this year's gigantic official celebrations and 
outpouring of patriotic emotion far exceed anything witnessed during the 30th or 20th anniversary of Hitler's defeat. The celebrations have amounted to a sustained assault on the senses for months, rather than just the past week, with victory and armed might the main themes. No talk of post-war reconciliation here. The kind of war films shown in Britain this week are shown in Russia almost every day, year in, year out. The war is always with us, Russians say. Now this uh, just seems horribly false and forced to me, like trying to zap life into Frankenstein's creature. The war is over and the veterans passing into history with it. You can remember it always without all this manufactured fanfare and military cosplay. Unless, of course, you're seeking to remember it for the wrong reasons. And your reasons have nothing to do with dignity and education and remembrance. One page, one paragraph from an excellent book on Stalingrad or Leningrad or anything by Svetlana Alexeyevich is worth a million strutting soldiers in Red Square. But I suppose if it comes down to noise, noise, noise versus quiet learning and individual remembrance, well, the racket in Red Square will always win. And indeed there was a racket in Red Square in May 85, as the victory parade began. Here is a description from The Guardian as all the weaponry, tanks and trucks began to roll past. The deep roar of aged engines rumbled into Red Square from behind the Lenin mausoleum and then clouds of thick, pungent smoke began to billow over the cobblestones. They came into sight, looming over the slight hill their gun barrels as full of menace now as when the German panzers first saw them in 1941. The article goes on. There were civilians on the march. There were women pilots and snipers, nurses and partisans. Their chests so thick with medals, it looked like chainmail. Watching the parade on YouTube, uh, we can see it was a clear day in Moscow. To make sure it didn't uh, literally rain on their parade, Moscow had its cloud seeders out the night before. So there was an almighty downpour of rain the previous night, leaving the sky free and clear on Victory Day. We have discussed the Soviet interest in cloud seeding in one of my previous bonus episodes for patrons. You can get access to all of them for £3 a month. Here's a short clip about it from one of my bonus episodes called Chernobyl Clouds. July 19th, 1980, Moscow. It was the opening ceremony of the Olympics a deeply controversial games, as it was the first to be held in the communist Eastern Bloc and was boycotted by 66 countries. The boycott led, of course, by the United States as a 
protest against the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which had started on Christmas Day, 1979. I suppose Moscow had a point to make, and so the opening ceremony was spectacular. Dancers dancing, flags flying, gymnasts leaping, trampolinists bouncing, and a gigantic balloon version of the Olympic mascot, Misha the Bear, came wobbling out onto the field. All of this taking place with big Brezhnev glowering down over all. If such an extravaganza had been held in Britain, everyone would have been worried about the weather, of course. I hope it doesn't rain for the ceremony. I hope it stays nice for the ceremony. Well, it was nice in Moscow that day. They had fine weather. What luck. The newspapers in Britain even remarked on it. Well, we do love chatting about the weather here. The Times said, The sun made a rare appearance after a week of almost continual rain. And The Guardian, aware of the political element, said... The protests were as mild as the Moscow weather. What good luck that after so much rain, the Russians had a nice day for their opening ceremony. A day when the eyes of the world were upon them. Except it wasn't luck. The Russians had tampered with the weather that day to make sure the sun shone. Of course, that seems like a crazy sci-fi plot. But this is actually a relatively common practice known as weather manipulation, although I prefer the more poetic term, cloud physics. As that bonus episode goes on to explain, uh, cloud physics, or cloud seeding, involves sending planes up into rain clouds to shoot silver iodide into them, which causes them to burst, to rain. You can do this to clear the sky and ensure good weather. For example, if you have an Olympic ceremony or a victory parade on the go. Or, as my bonus episode explains, you can do it to ensure that a massive 10 mile wide radioactive cloud, which is drifting from Chernobyl in the direction of Russia, is forced to unleash all its poison safely over Belarus instead. Back to the YouTube video of the 85 Parade, (laughs) the things I do for this podcast. We see Gorbachev and grey men file along the top of the Lenin Mausoleum, and the crowd in Red Square roar like a football crowd. Children wave miniature red flags, and they also wave flowers around like Morrissey. The bells begin to toll at 10 o'clock. car enters Red Square in a pleasing non-Soviet duck egg blue. It bumps along the cobbles and inside, standing perfectly upright in the open-topped car, is Marshal Sergei Sokolov, the defence minister. He fought against the Nazis and went on to command the ground forces in Afghanistan, eventually dying at the age of 101. 
As he zooms majestically around the square, there is lots of hollering from the ranks of Soviet soldiers. Then begin droning speeches from atop the mausoleum with the, the military down in Red Square standing straight with red flags fluttering and enormous missiles propped up behind them. Then comes the national anthem, which I won't play in a clip as Russia currently doesn't deserve to have its anthem played on my podcast. Then we have endless troops marching past. Then the civilian participants in the war. Then come the tanks and the trucks and then the missiles painted silver with angry red noses. And so we await Putin's speech later this morning. But no matter what he says, we can obviously see some small similarities between the extravaganza of 85 and Russia today. For one thing, the Times was reporting from Moscow in 85 that, in reference to the speeches being made, quote, there was little comfort for the West, which is increasingly seen as the spiritual heir of Nazism, the imperialist enemy, rather than the joint vanquisher of Hitler. And, as in 85, we will surely not see many foreign dignitaries in Red Square today, whereas in previous years many have attended. In 85, ministers and ambassadors from NATO countries actually boycotted the Victory Parade in protest at the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The US ambassador said he was also boycotting it due to the recent shooting dead of their military intelligence officer, Major Arthur Nicholson, in East Germany by a Soviet sentry. Although the UK ambassador chose to attend, which caused a bit of a fuss, but certainly there was no minister sent from the UK government. So if we look again at Putin as a parasite who's feeding off the intense memory and patriotism of the war, we might wonder if the the great feast on which he feeds was already being set out for him years before, when they were already speaking of the West as the heirs to Nazism. But perhaps the West were too big a target for post-Cold War Russia, and so they have shifted their ridiculous Nazi conspiracy to Ukraine. It seems the leadership constantly needs an external enemy so they can keep stoking the fires of 1941. So they can keep being a menacing nuclear Norma Desmond. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at Moscow of May 1985. Remember, you can get access to all my bonus podcast episodes. I think there are currently nine on the Patreon site, and I'm adding more all the time. You can get access to those for £3 a month. So please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo if you'd like to join. And let me thank my newest patrons, Darren Moan, Alexandra M. Iello, Darren Bryant, Sarah Claire Robson, Faye McKeend, and an increase in her pledge from Melissa Vavrensky. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.